You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like spades, seagulls and clutter. I want to do clutter. I heard I heard a podcast on clutter the other day, and I, it just sounded amazing. All from a sort of sociological point of view, and I thought actually what would be really interesting is looking at it from a historical point of view. But we could also do spades and seagulls, or... Pasta, priests and pampering, porcupines, pregnancy and potholes. Can you see, after this summer break, there's a slight <laughs> variation uh, on this theme. However, for the moment, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of jewellery is in fact all about amulets and magical powers and animal protection via Native Americans, Tudor call lockets and unicorn horns. It's also all about 18th century lockets, the Mughals, courtesans and female power, the Queen's jewels and rather large diamonds. Who knew, Sam Willis? Who knew? <laughs> or who knew that the history of footsteps... History of footsteps, yes, we've got to follow that one. It's in fact all about Roman civilization, animal prints frozen in time, treading in the footsteps of the past. It's about the history of religion, pilgrims and pilgrimages, and religious routes mapped across the world from ancient times to the present. A humdinger of an episode, Sam Willis, I think you'll you'll agree. It was wonderful. I really enjoyed that. And um, it was beach-based as well, beach-inspired, which is where we're going again today. Yes. Let me just introduce my fellow presenter. Let me say that if history was a slimy, stinking pile of slop, food <laughs> peelings, leftover bones, fruit stones with flies buzzing around them, ready to lay their eggs as the vibrant and nuanced day-to-day -day life of the past rots down into a forgotten goo of misunderstood filth, this man would be history's cooper. He would carefully hand-make a staved bucket, bound by a brass girdle of research to collect and store that miserable bucket of uncared-for grossness so that he could carefully resurrect it into fruity and meaty, nutritious snacks of the everyday. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. <laughs> Hello, Sam. You put me to utter shame. Have you spent the entire summer basically writing that? <laughs> that was so Well, no, I kind of went into a trance. <laughs> so I, I suddenly thought, I got, I've got to do something on buckets, and I thought, I can't do 
a single thing on buckets. So I went into a trance, and, and then five minutes later, I'd written seven lines. So there you go. Right, and I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm basically a bucket full of slimy slops. <laughs> kind of. You're the bucket maker. Well, You're the, the bucket, bucket maker. Oh, I'm the bucket maker. That, that, ma- that, makes, it very, that makes it all right, doesn't it? Um, well, you may yes. well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a bucket-related historian, he'd only be the chief fire bucket carrier supreme single-handedly putting out the fires of historical dispute dousing the flames of <laughs> dissent from with his, his, his <laughs> oh dear me that's atrocious Daybell dousing the flames of dissent from his historical pale yes he is the chief <laughs> firefighter of yesteryear you've guessed it it's the famous historical adventurer Dr Sam Willis that was a really shoddy introduction Sam I do apologise for that it was lyrical, but a bit blundered, but it's fine. Um, guys, we are doing today the history of buckets um, because we've, it's summer. It's summer holidays. We wanted to do some summer-themed things. And so buckets, and we're going to do spades next and uh, various other um, more summery things until... Um, until the storms of autumn come upon us, and then I think we'll do leaves, James. I think that'll be a nice Ooh, one nice. to do. Leaves and conkers. Um, yeah, so so buckets, um, and pr- principally inspired by the bucket and spade of uh, the beach-going kid, I would say. The beach-going children and how much fun they have with buckets and spades on beaches. Um, so it struck me when I was trying to think of an inspiring topic to do in the summer that we would do buckets and spades because I did think it was a little bit weird. It's so easy to take uh, for granted what all the kids do on the beach, but it's um, it's a kind of level of physical interaction with the environment there uh, from children having a glorious time that you don't really see anywhere else and you certainly don't see it in old Victorian paintings. Um so uh, I thought buckets would be an interesting thing to do. And um, I initially thought about um, what goes in buckets, rather like our episode on the history of boxes, which is good. Uh, you can think about it, about what goes in boxes. Um, but with buckets, uh, it's it's great stuff because you can do uh, slops, as I, as I mentioned uh, earlier, introducing James. Um, urine, waste, that all links to disease. So you're using buckets rather than running water. I was thinking about uh, bailing buckets on small craft and some fabulous stories about that after ship, about uh, the use of buckets um, after shipwrecks. So, James, yeah, the contents of buckets was something that sprung to mind. Oh, nice. I mean, I was I was also thinking about the hook of the seaside, seaside, summertime, buckets and spades, sandcastles, crabbing, rock pools, all that sort of invention of the English seaside holiday, Thomas Cook, all that jazz, 19th century invention, you know, which I'm sure you're going to be talking about. And I wanted to do something slightly different. And I got thinking about uses and types of buckets as well um i talked to my daughter my daughters are the fount of all historical knowledge my youngest daughter has an encyclopedic uh knowledge of everything horrible histories and so you just go to her with anything and she goes oh yes it's about that so buckets and urine (laughs) came up and i'm going to be talking a little bit about that um about types of different types of buckets and fire buckets different 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 Buckets made out of different kinds of things, so leather buckets or wooden buckets, yeah. the rise of metal buckets and the ubiquitous plastic buckets that we have nowadays, and then the different uses. And I I think I'm going to be talking about fire buckets, and I found the most extraordinary uh, example, uh, an object that survives in the British Museum, and it is a, it's from 1666, and it is a 
fire bucket that was used during the Great Fire of London to put out the fire. I mean, this was a tire. No, I, I like that. I'm amazed that it still it still is it survives. Leather? It is a leather bucket. Is it leather? It is a leather bucket, yeah. and it was found in a burned-out cellar at the end of Pudding Lane, along with other evidence of of the wooden supports for barrels. And it's got the initials SBB on it, so you can sort of sort of identify who it might have belonged to and the date. But it, you know, this is a time when London was. Yes, there was some brick, but most of the stuff, most of the buildings were timber framed. Uh, there was no organised fire brigade so people basically did the best they could within their local parishes within the local parish church and they would use you know axes to pull thing to pull timber down that was burning and then they would use buckets you know and it was handheld buckets that would that would allow the water to be used to put the fire out. Um, so I was going to talk a little... Well I've, well, I've talked about that now. I was also going to you've talk about urine and buckets. And then I, fe- I came across some extraordinary uh, ancient buckets and medieval buckets. Uh, have you ever come across citulas? Sort of religious buckets, buckets used Never for heard of it. Never heard buckets of it. used for carrying holy water, and there's a wonderful oh, yeah. example from the Victorian Albert Museum that has all these amazing biblical carvings uh, all over them. So I'm, uh, that's where I'm going to go with all of this. Hmm. Very nice. Actually, I talk about different types of buckets. I came across a peat bucket. Uh, and very distinctively Irish thing. So you can think of um, buckets having national character as well. We're going to get peat buckets in the UK, but you certainly get them in Ireland. So it's a bucket that goes by your fire where you put your um, sliced peat, uh, which they burn, so that keeps you warm. And uh, one went uh, sold for like €145,000, a very uh, distinctive Georgian type of peat bucket. And apparently the Irish also have plate buckets I didn't know about. So these are buckets where you put your plates in. You bring your plates from the kitchen to the fire in the plate bucket and then the fire warms them up. So it's a way of keeping your plates warm before you eat. But why don't we, James, let's just do it together. We can talk about the um, kind of the invention of the seaside and the the adoption of the bucket and the spade um, and the rake as well, quite interestingly. Um, You know, when you get a little um, you get a little bucket and bucket and spade set, there's often a little rake in there. And a sieve. Um, That's what. That's all part of the story. It's all part of part of the tale. So why don't we just do that together quickly? We could just have a talk about the development of um, of beachside holidays. Um, I suppose we should start off by saying that you know there was a time when there, when the only people who were on the beach were the ethnic uh, fishermen, the people who lived there and they worked um, in a pretty torrid environment, um, slaving away against nature to carve out a living. Um, And then there was a moment in the 19th century where you have romantic artists, people like Turner and Constable, uh, and uh, authors and poets who go and uh, enjoy um, focusing on these people and and how they live their lives. And then, because of the the art that they produce, uh, it inspires people to go to the seaside, to then go and see these um, these uh, ethnic uh, fishing communities. And it's in that kind of um, link, you've got a sort of cohabitation. Um, you've got you've got two groups of people living together. I suppose there are three. You've got the fishermen, then you've got the artists, and then you've got the, the travellers. Um, uh, that You get this um, crossover where, where fishermen start selling 
um, objects and trinkets linked with their trade, which people can take home. And uh, among the things that they sell are spades, buckets and spades. So um, I don't know if you came across this, James, but it's all to do with the... Uh, it's a type of fishing, but it's the act of foraging on the foreshore where the cockler, if you think of a cockler, his his um, his his tools are a bucket and spade and very often a rake. But it's not just cockles. There are all sorts of other bits and pieces which um, people are, are are getting from the foreshore, uh, which I think is quite interesting. Uh, sand eels is one which you might have um, might see nowadays. People using sand, live sand eels to catch sea bass. It's a great fishing uh, fishing bait, but also razor fish, mussels, um, lava bread, which is essentially seaweed. You've got shrimps and prawns and lug and ra- um, lugworm and ragworm as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just stop there, James. But it's, it's that's an interesting starting point, I think, for the seaside holiday. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, there's really the sort of, in, it's the invention of the British seaside resort, isn't it? And you think about how, you think about places like Bath, the sort of spa towns like that, that were connected with health. And from the 18th century onwards, I think that, that extends into coastal areas. And coastal areas now are associated with health and well-being and, and going and sort of breathing the fresh air and swimming in the sea and all of that if it's not too too polluted. So that that's really where, where it all starts. And then we can sort of follow it through the sort of the rise of the holiday. We can connect it to the growth of railways, the the way in which, you know, particular firms like Thomas Cook were set up in order to take people away um, and give them... Uh, you know, access to 
you know, leisure breaks and to, and to holidays. And then you've got the sort of development of seaside towns in terms of architecture, in terms of gardens and public spaces. You've got the contraptions associated with bathing. So you can think of bathing machines and beach huts and all of those kinds of things that I think are part and parcel of what we would see as a traditional British seaside holiday. In the 19th century, you've got the invention of piers, um, you know, that allow people to, you know, walk along them to go out to sea uh, and to, you know, and to sort of enjoy themselves and, you know, and various sort of things you know, there are apparently over, by 1914, over 100 pleasure piers in Britain, you know, dotted with all sorts of, you know, attractions for people to go and enjoy. Uh, and supposedly about 55 surviving piers in England and Wales to this very day, according to the National Peer Society, as I read uh here so yes um that's nothing to do with the um with the bucket and spade but i i imagine as you, you well know, no, it's kind of like the next it's the next it's, bit the next chapter yeah. on isn't it i mean yeah, yeah. family um, holidays children on the beach needing to entertain them you know but yeah and the, the, the history of, of of how you understand that is actually quite interesting and art is is a really good way of getting into it and there's one particular painting by william dice of pegwell bain kent uh it's from 1859 and it's believed to be the first visual representation of um, children sitting on a beach using buckets and spades. There's also donkeys and various other kind of tropes um, that you will associate with holidays. But this is 1859, which I think is a, um, it, that's a very interesting date for all of this to be happening because it's it's significantly on from the 1840s uh, when you've got the first, really, the 1830s, 1840s, the first contact between the Romantic artists and the, um, the you know, ethnic community. So it's, it allowed people to kind of get it into their heads that this is what they want to be doing. It's allowed the cultures to change so that you can go to a beach and you can um, uh, you can stay with fishermen. And fishermen is like a kind of early Victorian Airbnb. They're staying with them. They're taking them out on fishing trips. They're selling them um, tools of their trade. And among these tools, of course, is the bucket. Um, and they, they, they're often made out of driftwood. They've got all the, the, the skills because they can... Um, they can mend ships. Ships hulls are curved. Buckets are curved. They can they can do it, and then they can sell it. And then you think about what people are actually doing with the buckets. Now this is interesting. So I've talked about gathering shellfish and stuff. So this is a kind of an, a reenactment of the the local. Uh, uh, fisher folk or some of them who weren't actually taken to the sea but they were scouring the foreshore but also uh, kids nowadays use uh, use the buckets to mold castles to make sand castles and that's like a completely different uh, aspect to the whole the whole history that James you just mentioned um, very distinctive coastal architecture of piers there but uh, it's easy for us to to forget the fact that if, if you go to somewhere like Brighton or wherever it might be, there is significant coastal architecture. In 1859, there wasn't. All there was was um, small fishing villages and then enormous military works and castles. So military works in the 19th century, 18th century, Napoleonic Wars, and then huge coastal castles from the 13th century or so, a bit before some of them, 12th century, or, or even the 11th, like the castle at Dover. And so the association, which has been is made very clear, actually, by artists like Turner, of 
castles with the beach is made very clear. So it's not random that people are making castles with their buckets. They, there is a, a clear association of Britain being an island nation that has all these military defences that protect it from invasion. So that's kind of what people are doing even today. Oh, love that. I mean, I, I think there's also a material history of these buckets and spades. Um, I, I was having a look at the Museum of Childhood, uh, which is a wonderful museum in London, um, part of the, the V&A and the Museum of London. And, um, and it, they have there in the childhood galleries on the first floor displays of not only just party games but also of seaside accoutrements so bathing costumes that children would have worn but also vintage buckets and spades and i also found an example of a child's seaside rubber bucket and spade a canon rubber product registered design numbers six eight six three two seven six which is a sort of speckled white it's white with speckled yellow blue and red bits all over it um dating from 1957 so we've got the sort of the artifacts there themselves that survive and i think you can trace a history of that design you know back and has which has a really interesting history in itself in all sorts of variations and sizes and shapes that are connected to you know, scientific technologies, which is why the Science Museum has a, an example of this sort of rubber bucket design rather than a plastic one. And also the sort of much mm. earlier vintage ones that I think are, are really interesting. Whether children are, are involved in this or whether there is competitive sandcastle making. I mean, I was down at the beach... Uh, the other day at Bantham, which is one of my favourite beaches in Devon, a uh, superb beach, and the spectacular sandcastles that I saw on the beach there, including uh, a mock-up of Stonehenge in sand. Whoa. You know, there's yeah. some real competitive stuff. But then there's the, the idea of whether are sandcastles for children or are they for, for adults? Oh, the jury's out, I'm afraid, Sam. <laughs> who knows who knows what's going on but it is certainly to do with people um thinking about their environment and their history um even whether they're not doing it consciously but they are they are they are so you've got to celebrate people making making castles with their buckets um uh i also came across a, a, this wonderful quote i tell you the past is a bucket of ashes so live not in your yesterdays not just for tomorrow but in the here and now keep moving and forget the post-mortems and remember no one can get the jump on the future by the carl sandberg the american poet around you know, 1868 he was nearly 100 actually uh, when he died but i love that idea of uh, the past being a bucket of ashes and it made me think of famous fires where literally the past became a bucket of ashes and one of the most um i suppose the famous ones here and this is all to do with um with historical sources it's not a general point about about uh, historical fires this is historical fires when historical records were destroyed and so um i think one of the best examples comes from the summer of 1922 and the battle of dublin so there's a week of street battles fought in dublin that marks the beginning of that irish civil war and it's this is after the anglo-irish treaty that ends that what had been the irish war of independence and they start fighting again. You've got uh, the new provision, provincial government and a section of the IRA that are opposing the treaty. And they fight, they riot, and there is an enormous explosion at the public record office in Dublin. And it destroys much of Ireland's documentary heritage, dating back to the 13th century. 
Um, and there's a little quote here from the Irish Times that those precious records which would have been so useful to the future historian have been devoured by the flames or scattered in fragments by the four winds of heaven. And the losses there which were particularly acute were for late medieval Irish history and particularly the, the wonderful medieval chancery roles. Um, so these were all outgoing letters um, all to do with the Secretariat of the Kings of England um, and the relationship with Ireland, and, uh, and the majority of them were burned. But it took a, um, a, a fairly recent, a decade or so old, um, online project to source copies or um, sort of mentions as well of these lost documents in other uh, archives around around the UK and also Europe and to put them all online so you can now find them it's, it's called Circle C-I-R-C-L-E it's the Irish Chancery Project and it's worth having a look at there where they've they've recovered um, uh, certainly to, to, to well the, the, a lot of the content if not the documents themselves were destroyed in that terrible fire in the summer of 1922 Oh, they came along to Plymouth to a research seminar that I that I organised uh, and talked to us about the project. It's really, really fascinating. It's all about the, the way in which they have reconstructed those long-lost documents. Absolutely fascinating. Now, I wanted to take us in... My, my next thing that I'm going to talk about was, in fact, related to the coastline. So it sticks with that. And it's connected to the Yorkshire coastline in particular. And if you go up to that sort of part of of Yorkshire, up around Whitby and that sort of area, um, what's incredible is that there are these large chunks that seem to have sort of been bitten out of the, of the coastline. You know, there, there, there are all sorts of scars there. And this is related to quarrying for alum. Now, alum, as you probably know, is something that was mined in that area from about 1600 into the middle of the 19th century because alum is really important for dyeing. It's in fact a dye fixative. Now this is is a commodity that was used. There is a connection to um to buckets in a minute. <laughs> that sort of long preamble until we get there. So alum has all has for a long time been really important for this very sort of purpose. We can find evidence of it in the Roman Empire. Um, for much of the period, there is a monopoly on it. It's controlled by the papacy. Uh, we have to import much of it into into the British Isles. Um, but then in the 16th century, Thomas Chaloner found that fossils in the shale along this part of the coastline of Yorkshire had alum in them. And so what you have is the establishment of the alum industry there. Now... This is where this is where the bucket comes in because the process of creating alum means that basically in order to get it out you have to use ammonia and roast um, roast kelp for potassium um, and the biggest source of ammonia during that period was of course urine. Uh, so massive, massive amounts of urine were needed and it was estimated that around 200 tonnes of urine was used per year at the height of the alum industry. And this is literally um, the urine from a thousand people 
for the entire year. Can you imagine sort of carrying that? And and it's quite a sort of convoluted sort of way in which it works because it it takes it takes m- about nine months. So the alum is extracted from the the sort of the shale, and it's quite a complicated process. It involves burning huge piles of shale, you know, for about nine months, and then you transfer it into leaching pits in order to get out the aluminium sulphate, which is what you're what you're after. And this is then sent along channels to the alum works where urine is added. And so this is, you know, this is how, this is how alum, alum is sort of in, in a, in this sort of solution and then it's extracted. And there's a really odd way in which you know when this very unsavoury liquor is ready to lift out the alum crystals. And it is, it's, it's, um, it, you know that it's ready when you can float an egg in it. So that's the, that's the test for it. But what I'm interested in is how you get all of this urine. Um, now, one of the things that they do is they set up a public urinal in Hull. So a public toilets is built so that they are able to, you know, get hold of the urine and transport it. It's also supposed to be shipped in from as far away as, as Newcastle. Um, but also, and here's the thing, also people started... Um, there was a drive for people to actually collect their own urine and so buckets were put out on street corners and people would you know would urinate in them and then it would be you know picked up and carried off uh, and taken to the alum uh, factory um, where it would be or the alum processing place where it would be where it would be used for this this purpose, uh, which is where the phrase taking the piss uh, comes from, or, or one of the reasons <laughs> where taking the piss comes from. So there we are. Um, the the use of um, the use of buckets to carry urine uh, to extract alum from shale, uh, which connects to the coastline of North Yorkshire. Wonderful How about stuff. that for, Wonderful a, for stuff. a connection? Yeah. Very, very impressive. Um, well, we're nearly at the end of our history of buckets, James. Have you got any more? I have a lovely bucket that I was going to talk to you about, which is uh, I was going to talk to you about a different kind of bucket, which is um, these are sort of rare ancient artefacts or objects, and these are citulas. Uh, and there are thousands of them that survive. Uh, these are archaeological uh, finds. They're often grave goods, so you can trace them back to... Um, the Etruscan period, sort of 600 to 550 BC, where they're found in in tombs. Uh, there are a lot of Roman bronze uh, examples. They are highly decorated, so there are all sorts of motifs on them, and reliefs, and imagery, and inscriptions. Um, what I'm really interested in, though, is when they come, is when they get adopted by um, Christian uh, religion. Uh, and there are a whole range of highly uh, intricate uh, examples here. And one of the most interesting ones that I came across is an example from the Victorian Albert Museum, uh, which is absolutely extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. It's called the Basiluski Citula, and it's dated from roughly uh, 980 to 981 um, and it was 
it was made out of ivory and it was supposed to carry holy water and i don't know whether you've ever been to a sort of a catholic church or catholic mass and seen a very sort of high church and seen the way in which um often the the bishop would would have a sort of um a, a bucket of water of holy water and then would have a sort of rod um that would be dipped in it and as he'd walk up and down the aisle he would just flick water over the congregation so sort of anointing them with holy water by sort of you know a sort of scattergun approach that's exactly what this was uh and it was produced uh at the time of the visit of the emperor uh, Otto II to Milan with his third wife uh, Theophanu and his infant son who became Otto III and it's one of about three situlas from the Etonian period that have survived in various places but what's remarkable about this is the imagery that appears on it um, it's not particularly big uh, if you have a look in diameter, it's about ten, just over ten centimeters in diameter. So it's not not particularly big. If you put your your sort of hands together and make a circle, it's roughly roughly that. Um, it's about at the top. It's it's about twelve um, centimeters in diameter, and its height is only about seventeen point eight centimeters. I say only. That's a quite a precise measurement um, <laughs> measured by by curators by a curatorial team. But it ha it depicts. 12 scenes from the Passion and Resurrection of Christ. And these are arranged in two rows. And the upper row shows pictures of Christ washing the disciples' feet, the betrayal of Christ, Judas accepting 30 pieces of silver, etc., etc. And in the, the lower row, you've got the harrowing of hell, Christ appearing to the women, Christ appearing to the apostles, the incredulity of St. Thomas. And then you have a three bands of, of inscription, and the inscription, um, there are various sort of different um, translations of it. Uh, one of them, um, I think, is basically reminding the bishop um, of Milan um, to sort of, you know, venerate the, um, the, the, the sort of this vessel uh, which the Holy Caesar, in other words, the Holy, the Emperor, uh, has given him in order to, you know, use during the service. Um, so this is an extraordinary uh, piece that survives, you know, from the 10th century. We can situate it within a particular historical context. We can talk about the way in which it has been produced. So we can talk about the technology, the carving. We can look at the imagery on it and we can connect it to not only imperial power, but also to the power of the Catholic Church at the time all of that comes out of the perspective of the history of the bucket sam willis would you believe incredible isn't it amazing yeah extraordinary and there's so much more you can also find out about not least the murder uh, of one of his crewmen by william kidd who actually smashed him over the head with a bucket and uh, if you're interested in any pirate stories do please check out the history of william kidd because it's definitely the best one um <laughs> that's it for now though we're going to come back to you i think we might do spades next james i think that would be an appropriate thing for us to do spades and seagulls we should do well, two, a, a double, a double one, spades and seagulls. Um, that's it for now, though. Please uh, follow me on social media. I'm uh, at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime history, we've talked a little bit about the seaside today. Uh, please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. 
And you can follow me on social media at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Facebook and Instagram. And also check out our webpage, historiesoftheunexpected.com, for all our back catalogue, what we've been up to, magazine articles about all the things that we're that we podcast about, and also signed copies of our books. And also look out, very exciting, a paperback edition of Histories of the Unexpected comes out in October. I'm very, very excited about that. Um, if you'd like to support us, head over to patreon.com and our page there, uh, Histories of the Unexpected, and you can help us change the way in which people think about the past. But meanwhile, uh, hope that you are enjoying the summer sun wherever you are. Take care, guys. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.